we actually sold suspension systems. So not very sexy, but vital to, you know, a lot of the transportation that we use every day. I'm getting excited. That's right up my alley. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. A few weeks ago, we promised to bring more interviews from and about China, where so many of the products that entrepreneurs sell are traditionally manufactured. And what happens in China affects so much what happens in this community. So Ian, when we jumped on the horn today, the challenge I had for you is, why should people listen to this episode about China if, say, they don't currently do business in China? Talking to our guest today for me, was very eye-opening, even as somebody that's been manufacturing in China for many years and has gone to that country several times, at one time living there for 30 days. Because our guest today has an amazing insight based on the fact that he's lived there for 10 years and he speaks the language. I love talking to Westerners that live in a foreign country and speak the language because they're able to go so deep. So our guest today isn't just going to talk about manufacturing in China, He's actually going to talk about living there, what it's like to interact with the people, what the government is up to, and how a lot of these companies are run. And specifically on today's show, we're going to talk about how being there and and being on the ground and speaking the language gave him a competitive advantage. I was able to find the competitors' factories, worked with them, created better products at those same factories, and then beat them kind of at their own business. He's going to share some of the serious pitfalls he faced when he started to diversify into providing services for others. And I actually set up a full functioning fulfillment center in Shenzhen, China. Just before the project was going to launch, that customer canceled. And I invested a substantial amount of my own money, so tens of thousands of dollars. And before I know it, I I basically had nothing. So today's guest is Brian Miller. He lives in Shenzhen, China, where he runs a third-party logistics company, or 3PL, called EasyChinaWarehouse.com. They do e-commerce fulfillment for Amazon FBA sellers, Shopify, and WooCommerce stores. In addition, he has a mid-six-figure FBA business and also a small China sourcing agency. So he's pretty entrenched in the e-com business model that we so often discuss on this show, and I know so many of you are involved in. But the thing that makes Brian a little bit different is that he's actually started his life working within a Chinese state-owned enterprise. That is an SOE, and we will discuss an SOE many times throughout this episode. That's not something that a lot of Westerners have done before, Dan. So it's really a rare insight from the other side of the track, so to speak, into life in China. And I start our conversation by asking Brian about that. So I was technically an employee of the China government. I was a government employee working at one of their state companies. So we did manufacturing, specifically industrial manufacturing for railroad, automotive, wind power. So large, large industrial manufacturing. And why were they interested in someone like you coming in and having that role in that job? 
I worked for a subsidiary of the larger company, and the CEO at that subsidiary had a very strong vision that they couldn't grow anymore within China, so they really needed to expand abroad. And the best way for them to do it was to hire foreigners who were understanding of their own markets and use those foreigners to help them grow internationally. So I was responsible for the North American market for them. What were you selling? My friends always make fun of me because it's not not a very sexy product, but we actually sold suspension systems for railroad cars, automobiles, stuff that you never see and not very sexy, but vital to you know a lot of the transportation that we use every day. I'm getting excited. That's right up my alley. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like working for that state-owned entity? They functioned very much like a normal corporation in the fact that they had to you know, find their own customers and be profitable and all that thing. At the same time, they also played a huge role in serving the state of China. One of my bosses, he said the most companies, the most important thing to them is cash flow. But in China, state-owned companies, the most important thing to them is employment. So they were really employing the people, providing work, but also they had a role in developing technology within China. One great example is China was developing its own offshore oil rig, and they wanted all the components be made by Chinese suppliers. And we were part of that project to help them do that, you know, provide energy security for the country. So they played roles like that that are different from a normal corporation. Did you find the the direction of the company and the projects that you were working on to be in a consistent manner, or did the direction change a lot? It's funny you ask that because... I feel like China has no consistency ever. Um, <laughs> and I felt the same way with the direction of the company. Some days we would wake up and the priority was X. And a few days later, some high-level guy changed his mind and we were running a different direction, completely the other way. You know, So no. And you don't really ask why in China. You don't really question the boss. And I would even sit in meetings where everyone at the table, you can tell visibly that they disagreed, but no one would say anything. And everyone would get out of the meeting and go back to the office and just do it without question and without fail. What was the ultimate reason that you left that company? First of all, I lived in a very small Chinese city. Can you describe the city? Because I've, you know, we manufacture in China for, gosh, 10 years. And I've been to these cities before, probably around the same time you were there, 2008. You'd go days without seeing another Westerner. Yeah, I would probably go months without seeing foreigners. We lived in a third or fourth tier city. So those are known as the smallest, most underdeveloped cities within China. And specifically, my city was very industrial. So we made a lot of industrial components. I would say every day you would wake up and there would be kind of a haze you know, in the sky. I would sometimes have customers ask me, is that fog or is that pollution? It would normally be pollution that we had from the day. It was really small time China life. So there was no Western food. There was really only Hunan food, which is very spicy. And there weren't a lot of entertainment options. So in the beginning, it was very tough to adapt to the environment for sure. 
were you at a point in your life where this was still exciting to you though? Like you were learning Chinese, you were getting immersed in the culture. Was it was it an exciting experience not to see other Westerners for months at a time? Yeah, I actually loved it, to be honest. For me, it was a bit of an adventure. Every day was in a different small factory because our factory actually outsourced a lot of the production. So I spent a lot of time going to small little factories around Hunan, working with 20, 30-person factories with a factory owner and just a bunch of workers, essentially. You could never find these factories. The things that I saw were very interesting, and I learned how Chinese business was really done in the small cities within China that I don't think you can experience in the larger, more developed cities. Give us an example of something that you saw, because I've got a couple of experiences. You know, one of them was going to China and watching workers weld on our steel products without proper welding glasses. I saw that and, you know, in that moment, like I, I just, I felt pretty bad about a lot of things. The fact that we were outsourcing the labor to China, the fact that it was lower cost, the fact that these people were potentially permanently damaging their eyesight. Actually, most of the smaller factories didn't follow that great of safety protocol. In fact, a lot of the workers who manage the machines would actually purposely take off the safety functions of the machine in order to do it quicker, in order to do it easier. They are getting better, but it really comes down to the factory owner's education of his employees about the importance of it. We did a lot of machining, and there would be purposeful sliding doors that would close the machine in order to protect the employees while the work was was going on. You usually couldn't start the machine without closing them, but a lot of those machines were, that function was disabled by the operators purposely. I saw a lot of things where there was toxic kind of fumes and people weren't having proper protection over their, their nose and mouth. Very common for that type of thing. As far as some of the other things, like there's a lot of reports about child labor and things like that. I haven't seen a lot of that in China. That seems to be getting significantly better. China recently, specifically last year, has been tightening substantially on pollution from factories. And they did a big sweep through the country last year. I know a lot of people that were manufacturing, their suppliers were telling them, oh, the price is going up because we have to abide by new environmental regulations. And it did raise costs, but it's been a good thing for the country because I've gone to many more cities and they've been less polluted based on the feel when you arrive. But there were all types of factories that were trying to skirt those regulations as well. I know my factories, a lot of them were just running at night. They would bring in their whole crew to manufacture while the inspectors weren't there. So during that time, we were also getting squeezed on our supply because they were only able to produce maybe a third of what they're used to. But factories were finding ways to kind of get around it at the same time. One thing that people might not realize is just amazing, like how fast things can get done over there. Like it takes years of legislation to change emissions regulations in California, like years and years and years of people working full time. And in China, it's just like, you know what? We're lowering our emissions 
And like overnight, there's inspectors in these factories across the country, across millions of factories. Directly in Shenzhen, where I live, they just made legislation that by 2020, all public transport, including taxis and light truck, needs to be electric. And they just made that kind of overnight. And you could see from the city how the transition from gas vehicles is changing at rapid pace. A lot of the buses are already electric. A lot of the taxis are already electric. And you can see a lot of the light freight already changing. So this is a great example about how quick this type of legislation can change things. You know, when I was in China a lot, most of the factory workers, they live at the factory. Like there's some basically dorms on site that the factory workers live in. Is this still the case today? Yeah, it's still very common, actually. A lot of our factory workers had dorms, even some of our salespeople. So the people that worked in the office with me, and usually the dorms were subsidized by the company in some way, whether they were free or they would be discounted compared to the local rent. Just because of the sheer size of the population, that type of living arrangement is very common. And it's also accepted by the workers. The workers are not displeased with that type of arrangement. Have you ever got the chance to visit these dorms? And do you have a perspective of what it's like to live in one? Well, I've never lived in them, but I have visited them. Usually, at least the ones that we saw at our company, they were not six-person dorms. They were typically two-person dorms. So they'd kind of look like a hotel room almost. The only thing that probably us as Americans would definitely not like is that you didn't really have a choice of your roommate. And you had to live with kind of a stranger. I mean, kind of your coworker. So for that, I think we would be pretty uncomfortable. You roomed with somebody that's like in your same status? Yeah. So you would be placed with like, if you were a salesperson, you would also be placed with that salesperson or someone in the same department. They wouldn't usually put like someone that was working in the office as a manager with someone that was on the floor in the factory. Are the Chinese primarily still working six-day work weeks in those types of environments? Yeah, it's surprising. Most people still work six days. Some people do just every other weekend that they work. But the company that I worked, it was, it was a five-day week. But I still see in China, most employers work six days a week. And actually, to be honest, the Chinese are very hardworking. So I find that whenever I send them a message, they're always replying. I even have a story about a supplier that I was working with that made an insert for one of our packages. And it was kind of taking a while for them to get it together. And I sent her a message. And she literally sent me a message back saying, hey, I'm at the hospital. I'm about to have my baby, but it will be done next week. <laughs> and that's kind of common throughout all of China, which I'm always impressed with. They're always on, you know, they're always working. One of the things I've never got to experience or see in China is like entrepreneurship, basically. I'd already met people once they'd already become entrepreneurs or factory owners. I'd never met somebody that had kind of progressed through that. I've heard stories, but I knew some people that not were actually factory workers, but they were maybe a factory manager. And they would very commonly partner up with engineers at our company. 
and go start their own factory that would make similar products. And they could sell those same products and provide the factory that they or the company that they left better margins. So at my previous company, I saw this very consistently. We knew a lot of engineers that left the company, started the same factory, and then sold product back to the company they left. Interesting. And so was this actually like celebrated in a way because they could get a lower cost? Yeah, it's celebrated. And also for a lot of the purchasing managers at the old company, they like it as well because they know those people. They trust him. And a lot of the stereotypical hongbao, which is passed around in China, is much easier to pass to each other once you have that strong connection and you trust that person. And that's why it works so well. Do you know if these companies went on to become state-owned companies as well or, or how that relationship works at all? Typically, they don't. Typically, they're privately owned, but they're very connected with that state-owned company because of the personal relationships that those people have, but also they are making the same products. And as state-owned companies became less competitive because there was too much management overhead, a lot of production was getting sent to smaller factories like this. And this would help the state-owned companies keep their margins and their costs down. So in a way, it was helping, <laughs> helping these big companies be a little bit more efficient, essentially. That's interesting. You know, it's, it's hard to believe half of what you read these days, but I read something the other day. Uh, it said that all Chinese companies, whether they are private or public, must share information with the government if asked or if summoned. Did you ever experience any of this, the private companies kind of reporting to the government? Not specifically firsthand. I never saw it, but it's pretty expected within the country. And I even expected as a, as a foreigner living in China that, you know, my information, my messages, maybe even this conversation that we're having right. could be recorded, right? And it could be used by the government in which, whichever way they want. And specifically, when I worked at the company, there were many newspapers that wanted to interview me to do a news story on, on a foreigner working at a state-owned company. And I would actually always deny them <laughs> because I didn't want to say something that could get me in trouble. Do you feel like it's changed at all? Because I have to imagine part of the reason they were approaching you is because they wanted to really understand who you were and what you were up to because you're kind of an anomaly. But are you really an anomaly anymore? I think if I stayed in that city, I would be. Now that I live in Shenzhen, that's close to Hong Kong, and there's a lot of Westerners here, foreigners, I'm not that much of an anomaly. For sure, if you are in those small cities, you're still kind of unique, you're special. People treat you that way as well. I hated the special treatment. <laughs> I mean, we, we would get special treatment no matter where we went when we were in these small cities. Even the local bars, they would give us like free bottles of whiskey. Before we talk about what you're doing now in Shenzhen, can you explain to me where you were living, like what the conditions were like there? So I lived in a, a large high-rise in a big community building. I lived on the 13th or 15th floor. And basically, I lived in like a, a standard apartment, a few-bedroom apartment for the Chinese, which are not that big. They're probably a few hundred square meters. The thing about southern China, which I hated the most, was there's no actual heating. 
they just have air conditioners. So in the winter, it would get, you know, zero Celsius or below. And we essentially had no heat. I would go into my home and I could see my own breath. And it was similar for the factories in the office as well. So wherever you went in the winter, it was freezing. I wore my winter jacket literally every day, all day. I was just wearing that thing every day. (laughs) (laughs) It never left my body. The building material on the Chinese buildings are also not so good. So the windows don't insulate. So you feel like you're outside every day in the winter. It was bad. I learned so much when I was there about how everything worked in China that it was kind of worth these negative aspects to be participating and to be working for this company. Today's show is sponsored by DynamiteJobs.co. It's our newest baby and targets something we're passionate about here at the TMBA, helping your business succeed through growing amazing remote teams. And we know from personal experience just how hard it can be to find the right people. And that's why we've designed Dynamite Jobs to address that problem. So starting at as low as $200, we can help you find your next remote team member. And for $500, we'll handpick the best candidates using a pre-vetting process. We call it WiseMatch. And it's designed to save you days, even weeks of your time determining the top ranking candidates for the role that you need. And for those of you seeking remote jobs, I urge you to register with us. It's completely free. I promise you we're not just the next job board. We want to work actively with you to identify ideal positions for your skill set. So whether you're looking to hire great people or whether you're one of those great people who feels that your skills are wasted in your current company and you want more freedom and flexibility in your life, check out dynamitejobs.co today. So can you tell me the conditions in which you left that company and what you did after that? I left the company on a good note. I left a few years ago and I moved immediately to Shenzhen, China, where I started. Well, I had an FBA business at the time. So I started the FBA business while I was actually working at this state-owned company. And I also wanted to try starting a China sourcing agency. So helping foreign companies, small to medium-sized companies source product from China. And I thought with all of the experience working for a Chinese factory that I could really provide a lot of value to those companies. Why did you want to start an FBA business? So one of my college roommates, he approached me with the idea. He thought it was a great opportunity to work with me to partner up. And I do kind of the sourcing side of the business. And he does the marketing side. So we just found a really good fit together. And I thought I had a huge advantage being on the ground, being able to find unique products, develop unique products and optimize the products. Because a lot of you know strategy within Amazon is usually, hey, you find a mediocre product, you go and you see what's wrong with it, you optimize it, and then you sell it against the, the current people. And so when you say it really worked out, to what degree? I mean, now it sounds like you have a mid six-figure business, but How fast did you see your advantage taking control over your competitors? It was pretty immediate, actually, because I was able to find the competitors' factories. And I went to all those factories and easily was able to develop a product very quickly 
and also optimize it because they were already making it. I already knew what they were doing and we knew that they were a good high quality factory. We found a lot of our <laughs> competitors' factories directly, worked with them, created better products at those same factories, and then beat them kind of at their own business. That's what really gave the business a lot of growth in the beginning. So a lot of people are probably listening to this thinking this is somewhat unethical. Me, I think this is genius. What do the factories think about it? Yeah, I think a lot of them look at it as a diversification of their current revenue. When we went in and found products, obviously we had to check whether there were patents. We would never go and infringe on anyone's patent or copy their product identical, but we had the base to basically start with a base and create a better product, essentially. And a lot of times they also own the molds. So they have the decision power to provide those products because they have ownership of the mold itself as well. And I'll just explain that real quick. When you manufacture a part, like specifically a plastic part, it needs a mold or it needs a piece of tooling. And a lot of times that piece of tooling is very expensive to uh, manufacture. A lot of times, you know, a Chinese factory will ask the American company or they will not ask them, you know, do you want to own or do you want to make this tooling? And generally the answer is no, because it's so expensive. And they say, okay, no problem. We'll just make it for free for you guys. But then what happens, what a lot of people don't realize is that they own the tooling, like you said, and then they can decide, okay, we're not going to make this product for you anymore, or we're going to change this. And so because you outsource the engineering, a lot of times to these Chinese manufacturers, because you outsource the design, they end up owning this tooling. And that can be an advantage if you're the factory. Yeah, absolutely. But at the same time, I always tell people, tooling is usually not a factor in really protecting your product because generally the cost of tooling is not that high. So if there were a competitor with large enough pockets, they could always make the same exact product as you. People always worry about if someone finds out where I make it, then I'm done. But really there's probably a hundred factories that make the same thing. And those 100 factories are probably within 100 miles of each other or closer, maybe even 10 miles, right? Because that's kind of the way that China used to be set up. I'm not sure if it still is. But you know, if you manufacture X widget, chances are all the factories around you do. Yeah, that's the beauty of China is that there's usually centers of manufacturing where they make a specific product or type of product. And that sub-supply chain is always right next to those factories and their competitors. So you can easily spend a weekend in a city and visit five different factories that can potentially produce your product. Really efficient. It's kind of surreal, like you're describing, walking into a factory and seeing your competitor's product being manufactured, and you're like, oh, bingo, I found them. You're walking into these factories saying, bingo, I found where these guys are manufacturing. And then what's next? Yeah, so we would basically tell them that we would want to develop a similar product, but with different features, specifically improvements that we found with faults within the product. And usually we would always do a really small production run. The advantage of me being here as well was I could always negotiate like really, really low volumes. So I remember the first product that we made, I negotiated for them to make us 10, like 10 units. <laughs> and if you go on Alibaba, it's like minimums like 10,000 or 1,000, whatever it is. 
Yeah, yeah, they told me like a thousand in the beginning. Okay, you need to order a minimum of a thousand. And I sat with them and I said, we can only buy 10. (laughs) (laughs) We started the business with almost no investment. We could test the product with very low risk. And are you speaking to them in English? Usually in Mandarin, because I, I studied Mandarin and I am fluent as well. So usually the higher level people in the company, specifically the manager or the owner, often doesn't speak English. And I always found that the most successful way to work with factories is to get in contact with those people. Because the lower level salespeople oftentimes don't have a lot of push within the company. Okay. So you figure out how to get to these factories, specifically your competitors' factories. You figure out how to do low quantities. And then what happens? You start putting up these products on Amazon selling to the US market? Yeah. We started with the US and we started with one product type and we tested how to you know rank it and how to get it up there. And of those first 10 units that we bought, we sold them within the first, I think, two or three weeks. So we knew we had something and immediately we ordered 100. And we kind of constantly went through this process of ordering a little higher amount and then selling through them and then ordering more. But we always, we could never get the inventory right as a lot of people that start. We couldn't figure out our sales velocity. We would always order incorrectly. The factory would always be delayed in some way, you know? Like, right. I can't tell you how many factory delays we've had. Even with me on the ground, people say, oh, once you're on the ground, you must be able to solve everything. And that's actually not true. Some things, even if I sit there next to them all day, I can't get pushed faster. That's the pain of China, but it's it's kind of part of the business. And at the time, are you sending containers over to the United States or are you just flying single units as they're being ordered? Our first strategy was to actually ship the product to my apartment in China. And once we got an order, ship it to the end customer directly from China. So we started doing that on Amazon and we found out very quickly that all the users are used to Prime. And we started getting a lot of, they call it AZZ claim. They complain against your your listing that you're not delivering it fast enough. And it's negative for your Amazon account. So after we tried that with a lot of error, we started shipping them in batches to FBA directly from China. But small batches. We started air. And then once we had enough volume, we probably filled up a quarter container. So it slowly built up. And when you say FBA, basically you were sending it to Amazon's warehouses in bulk and then they would distribute. Now, tell me this, because I've never done it. We always used to ship containers. When you ship single items, it seems to me that even cheap things, like less than $5 that get sold on Amazon, a lot of these things are getting shipped directly from China. How is it possible that there can be any margin in products like that if you have to ship by air and still make any money? A lot of the shipments, so this is what kind of my new business does, which is fulfill direct from China to the end customer. It's shipped through the post office. And a lot of people don't know that there's a United Postal Union. And this union actually provides rates between countries, actually. So the United States Postal Service will make an agreement with Belgian Post or China Post. And they will have rates that they negotiate between each other. 
And because of these agreements, shipments internationally can sometimes be just as competitive or more competitive than shipping it domestically. So I go to the post office a couple of weeks ago. I need to send some documents to Hong Kong. It's like literally $75 to send an envelope of 25 papers to Hong Kong, but somehow you can send your widget over to the United States for a dollar or two. You can kind of see where there's a disadvantage, right, of manufacturing a product in America and selling it into China. But also based on the rules and regulations too. So when you ship things out of China, China pretty much lets you export it through the postal system without making any formal declarations. So it leaves China very easily. However, if you were to ship that same package from the U.S. into China, you would have to go through a very formal import process. So it's a bit slanted so that it's easy to get stuff out, but really hard to get stuff back in. Right. And that's probably why there's a lot of political disagreement at the moment. Some of the gripes come from this type of very two-sided arrangement. I want to hear a little bit more about what your FBA business is doing today. Are you still carrying out the same process of identifying factories that are manufacturing competitors' products, going in, making them better? Or have you moved on to a new strategy? We still use a similar strategy to find products. It's not a foolproof system. So sometimes you can't find the end factory. So you have to go through kind of a a standard process where I'd have to go find and qualify new factories. And now with the internet, there's more available information on, on the internet, specifically through Alibaba. It's getting easier for people to find where things are made and find factories that make things. It's really opened up in the past, you know, five or 10 years, the ability to find these factories more easily. And so how do you think that's going to impact your business in the future? There's been a big push of Chinese sellers into Amazon. So this is kind of a risk for everyone, including me, because they're willing to take less margin. They can find the factory just as effective as as I can. And sometimes they could even drive costs lower than me. And it's something that I think all sellers should think about and be concerned about is the Chinese seller because they are getting better at Amazon, they're getting better at marketing. Their abilities work very well with the platform. They're not always very brand conscious, which an Amazon product doesn't necessarily need to be. And they're very good at understanding the platforms and ranking products high and and all that stuff. That's the big thing that everyone should think about going now into the future. Yeah, I mean, in the past, when I was manufacturing products, we always just figured like, oh, the Chinese are, you know, it's going to take them a while to figure out how to market these products. And so we were less concerned about it. But now there's all these platforms, right? And you don't actually have to know how to market a product. You just have to know how to game the system. And a lot of ways, they're really great at doing that. And so, yeah, I would be scared (laughs) if I was manufacturing (laughs) products and selling them on Amazon because they can just go direct now. And I'm sure that they've figured that out. You know, back in the day, we did a lot to try and protect our brands and try and shield ourselves from these factories understanding the brands that we're selling these products under. You know, eventually they would catch wind, they would come to our site, they would see the prices. But now everything has just become so much more transparent. I have no question that it's almost impossible to cover those kinds of things up. 
Yeah, and even in my city, which is a huge FBA city, there's a lot of Chinese Amazon sellers. There are probably events weekly, mainly focused on selling on Shopify and, and FBA. People are doing it. People are getting together here in China and talking about it. And I think they're going to become a larger, let's say, threat to other FBA sellers that are currently selling at the moment. It sounds like you're a bit diversified in, in what you're doing. So you've got this Amazon FBA business. You've got a sourcing business helping other people do what you do. And then you have this warehouse. It's always been a dream of mine to own a warehouse. It's weird. <laughs> How did you find yourself where you have a warehouse in China? When I had started my product sourcing business, I had started working for a large dropshipping company. And they were very happy with the work I was doing for them sourcing products and developing their supply chain. And so after a few months, they had asked me to actually open a fulfillment center for them in China. And the fulfillment center would just serve them to easily buy product in China and ship it to their end customer through that postal route that we were talking about previously. So I took the work. I thought it was a great opportunity, and I was interested in this type of business model. And I actually rented, hired an employee, and set up a full-functioning fulfillment center in Shenzhen, China. Actually, just before the project was going to launch, that customer canceled, meaning he said he didn't want to go through with it anymore. So I had a fully functioning warehouse and fulfillment center, and I had no customers. Wow. <laughs> I had no shipments. I had this thing that I knew had value, but I didn't have anyone to use it. And that's kind of how it was born, actually. Just to take a step back, like I've rented warehouses in the United States before, and it's quite a process to find the location, to negotiate the price, to have a lease. Does it work in a similar way in China? Yeah, it's similar. We looked for spaces within Shenzhen. A lot of it is based on cost per square meter and size of the facility. And most people want a lease of, of at least a year. Some of the commercial buildings, they want two years in Shenzhen. So I worked to try to find the most flexible arrangement with the shortest lease I could get. Just, you know, as we grew, I wanted to have flexibility to expand. It was more or less the same thing. Same thing, like you put down your own personal cash. So you would put, you know, a few month deposit down, and then you would pay monthly for the facility. And then within the facility, you would have to do your own renovation, depending on how you wanted the facility to look. Not so just like in the United States, call it triple net. And it's, it's basically, you pay for everything that happens to that space. Air conditioner conks out, you pay for it. Door lock doesn't work, you pay for it. So, you know, you're an American, you got to rent a space. Do you need to have a residency card? Like, could I get on a flight tomorrow, be in China, in Shenzhen and rent a warehouse? It's a little harder directly if you were to just jump on a plane, but I established a Chinese company here in China. Okay. They call it a WUFE, W-O-F-E, which is a wholly owned foreign entity. And this is a company that's owned by a foreign national. And basically with this company, I can sign contracts between my company and you know someone who would lease me something or someone that would provide a service to me. In China, it's actually surprisingly easy for a foreign national to open a company. It took me, 
I think, around three weeks to set up the whole thing. And China has relaxed the process and made it made it a bit easier. Interesting. And, and can you do it just by speaking English? They have agents that will help you, just like you would for Hong Kong, where they have a, an agent help you set up a company. Usually the ones that speak English and serve the foreign companies are probably five times more expensive than the local ones. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I paid like $800 to set up the thing. And I think a lot of the foreign setup companies are maybe charging like five grand. So I'm imagining you in like a painter's uniform, you know, putting the final touches on this place, polishing the doorknob. And then you get a text from who you feel like is going to be your anchor client. And they're like, no go, we're not going to use this warehouse anymore. What did you think? That was probably the most stressful part of me starting all these businesses because I had foolishly not taken enough upfront deposit for the job. As anyone, you you trust the people that you know, and I put a lot of trust in that client. And I invested a substantial amount of my own money, so tens of thousands of dollars, into this project. And before I know it, I basically had nothing. And it was at that time that I started to scramble to look for anyone that could use the service that I can provide a lot of value to their business. And it was at that time that I reached out to all my personal network that I've met over the years, friends and family, anyone that I could think of that was doing anything with e-commerce, I contacted. What is your role for them now? Is it to distribute product from China to China? Is that what this warehouse is set up for? No, it's actually set up for China to rest of world. So we would connect with your factory, your factory would manufacture the product, and then they would ship it to our warehouse in Shenzhen. And then we could either fulfill it directly to your end customer from China. So if you had a Shopify store, we could ship it to them. Or we can ship it to an FBA warehouse anywhere in the world or any of your B2B customers. So basically, the idea is it provides a lot of flexibility in how you distribute your products around the world without making a commitment right when you manufacture. So instead of like taking a container worth of goods, shipping it to the US, and then realizing you have a B2B order in Japan, having to ship it back, you can leave it in China and ship it as you sell globally. I tried to actually set up something like this way back. It was probably in like 2009 or 10. I approached a couple of Chinese manufacturers and I said like, I want to set up this warehouse in the United States and we're going to distribute your products as they're ordered, basically. I got like the loudest no's I've ever heard. They're like, are you crazy? We're not going to like prepay for a bunch of inventory, ship it to the United States and then sell it. Do you think things are changing? Do Chinese manufacturers kind of understand this value proposition of what you're talking about? Yeah, I think so. That's actually a really good idea. And I see some Chinese companies trying to do it. They call it a foreign warehouse where they ship a lot of their product into the US and then they distribute it from there. So I see more and more Chinese companies doing that, not specifically the factory, because I find Chinese factories are very risk averse and they prefer to just manufacture their X number of units and get paid for it directly. But the people that are selling it in between, so someone that buys it from the factory, maybe a Chinese company, is doing that type of business at the moment. And I see it more and more. So you have this warehouse, Brian, and part of me is thinking like, okay, you made a mistake. 
you thought you had this anchor client, you don't have this anchor client. Now it's just kind of time to recover whatever losses you might have. Has this actually turned into a business? Yeah, it actually has. You know, since that dreadful text message, within a few weeks, I was able to secure my first client. And this is kind of what saved the business. I remember he shipped a few hundred units to the warehouse. And I literally went with my employee and we received them. And I just had an Excel spreadsheet with all of his orders. And we printed out all the labels. And I literally just checked each order as it left the warehouse, like manually. Like that was the beginning of the company, me sitting in a Chinese warehouse shipping it. And then we started to find new potential customers. And since then, we brought on a lot of new customers. And we've also hired a software firm to develop software for the company. We now have a fully functioning software system that connects to a lot of the e-commerce platforms. So since those really small beginnings, I was able to quickly find new customers and then through referrals, gain traction and make it into a a business that I still run today. And so this sounds like it might work for somebody that has multiple orders going to many different countries. Because a lot of people now, they just send their product directly to Amazon FBA, right? Because there's like very little mistakes. The cost isn't so much. What instances would someone use your warehouse? Yeah. So you're exactly right. If you sell on multiple Amazon platforms, meaning marketplaces. So if you sell in North America, Europe, and let's say Japan, it would sometimes make more sense for you to leave your stuff in China. And as you sell through in each marketplace, then you would refill your inventory. Because as we know, when we run e-commerce businesses, a lot of times we can't accurately estimate you know, the sales velocity. And as each of those markets sell, you can replenish the inventory. So that's one case. And then also for people that want to use our fulfillment center to ship or serve countries that are too small to establish their own warehouse, but big enough that they still want to sell to it. So a perfect example would be Australia. There's probably like a 30 million person population. And instead of sending inventory to Australia and working with a warehouse there and doing all that stuff, you can ship your product directly from China to your end customer in Australia. So it provides a lot of flexibility in serving smaller markets that previously you might not think you have access to. What are some of the predictions that you feel like you're in a position to make about China and e-commerce? Because I feel like you're a rare bird. Is there anything that comes to mind that you think about that maybe you have insight to that most people don't? I still think there's a lot of, at least at the moment, there's kind of a lot of rhetoric now about trade and things like that, and whether China will still be a manufacturer that people want to go to, depending on if there's tariffs and all that stuff. But I still think it will for the near future. So that's that would be my first prediction. They still have better infrastructure than most of their other competitors, which would be India or Southeast Asia. And I still think it will be a manufacturing hub for people into the near future. As far as e-commerce, I think there will be an opportunity for people to look inwards into China as an opportunity of a market that they can address with a large consumer base that has a lot of money to spend. So I think in the future, China as a market that people want to sell into 
will be more and more attractive. And I think if you have the resource to try the market now and get in early, I think it would be an advantage for any e-commerce company to test out the Chinese market. How would somebody go about doing that? I mean, what are some of the tools that people are using to market to Chinese people? There's the similar platforms, and I'm not an expert on it, but in China, there's similar platforms like Taobao and JD.com. And those are platforms just like Amazon, where you can be a third-party seller. But also a lot of people use social marketing. So WeChat has become a big player in China for everything in life, essentially, not only communication, but payments and all different things. So people are also using influencers, influencer marketing through social platforms to market to Chinese. Probably the best way to get started is to find a local partner to do that in China. So there are consultant companies that offer this type of service, and they charge a fee for that. They all have different ways in which you engage them. As Americans, like we have some exports that are kind of universal, like Hollywood. Through Hollywood, you get to kind of get a glimpse of what it's like to be an American, like the kinds of products that we're into, the kinds of experiences that we have, things like that. To me, even as someone that spent a lot of time in China, like those types of Chinese experiences, like they're very opaque. You are on the ground there. You probably understand Chinese culture a lot better than a lot of people do. But if I was going to sell a product to China, like I would have no idea what kind of products they're looking for. So how do you even start to figure that out? I think now it's good to focus on the younger generation in China. China has been specifically very brand focused. So it's always been important if you're a Chinese consumer to buy the nicest, most in-fashion international brand. And what I'm finding now is that younger people within China, they want to be more individualistic and they want to be unique among all their peers and the people that see them. And these are the consumers now that are more open to engaging with smaller brands, purchasing from them because it makes them different and it makes them unique. So I think for smaller you know, companies that are looking to get into China, they should focus on this type of demographic because these are going to be the consumers within China that are the most receptive to that type of product. Brian, if you were going to make a prediction about your time in China, how long you'll be there and the things that you'll do in the future, what do you think? I get asked this all the time, specifically from my mother. <laughs> She's hoping that I say I'm coming home next year. Has she visited you there? She's actually coming this March, so I'm super excited. They came 10 years ago, and now they'll come again. 10 years ago, I couldn't even speak Chinese, so it's going to be a really, really fun, fun way to show them around. But I would say now that I've spent so much time, it's really making it hard to leave here. All of my unique ability is really very ingrained in China and the Chinese market. I always think if I were to go home, I would just be another guy that lived in China that can't use all of his unique skill effectively from the US or from another country. It's becoming more harder and harder to leave. And I, I can't see myself leaving, at least in the near future, you know, for the next five or 10 years. Are you still as excited as when you're wearing that coat in your room, hoping that you had a little bit more heat 
Are you still excited? Are you still sitting there with a smile on your face? I am, actually. I love China. I still think that there's massive opportunity in the market. I'm excited about it every day. Shenzhen's a great city. There's so many things happening. All the hottest tech companies, startups are all forming in Shenzhen. I always tell people that if you just come to Shenzhen, you close your eyes and you hold your hands out, you could probably grab a whole bunch of money because there's still that much opportunity in China in these cities. I'm very bullish, of course. I'm highly invested and probably very biased, but it's still growing at a good pace. The consumer is getting wealthier and has more money to spend. And even though it is slowing a little bit, it's kind of the law of large numbers where it's not going to grow at 10% forever. But I still think it's a very important, enticing market to be in and to be participating in. Is there anything that you can see that would take you out of China that would make you leave China, go somewhere else? Yeah, I think specifically near term is the political environment. If it were to get worse, it could force me out. That's always a risk factor that I have to think about. I am a foreign national in the country. I hope, you know, global tensions relax a bit, but this is always something that I have to think about and consider. And I think this is the largest, at least most recent risk factor that would really push me out. The second would probably be children, but I don't, I don't think those are coming soon. So I have a little bit of time to think about that. Why would children push you out? I still like the American system and education system. I think it creates people that are more free-thinking, more creative. Not saying that there's anything wrong with the, the Chinese system. Clearly, it works very well. They're an amazing country that's built you know, a strong economy, etc. But I just prefer that system. It's always interesting to talk to somebody like you that's so deep into the Chinese culture at this point. It's fascinating to me because although you can visit China freely, you can watch TV programs on it, etc., until I talk to someone like you, it's hard for me to really get an idea of what's going on there. So really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today about your life in China. Is there anything else that you'd like people to know about your business or China? First of all, I'm always open to talk more about China because I love about it. So if people want to connect with me, maybe you can leave my contact details in the show notes, and I'd be happy to take any emails about anything about China. If they want an idea about sourcing or shipping or any type of logistics help, I'd be happy to answer any questions. You're obviously very enthusiastic about China, and you're also very generous. This is a very generous offer. Appreciate you coming on the show and explaining to us what it's like to live in China. Yeah, happy to be here and happy to tell a little bit about what I feel about China. So thanks for having me. Ian, part of the reason I love this conversation, even though not currently planning on doing business in China, is for me, it's always inspiring to hear people who went on a career adventure. Because that's really what I want my career to be too. You know, I want it to involve travel, the unknown, learning, like having to embed myself in a new community and learn something new. So we got elements of all that in Brian's story here. When somebody says, uh, is your life worth 
writing a book about or a movie about, I think about Brian. My first thought was no, (laughs) not (laughs) mine. (laughs) This guy is going to have something to tell his grandkids about, and they're going to be interested. Fascinating for me to hear a firsthand account of what it's like to live in China, what it's like to work for a state-owned enterprise, and just generally be an outsider in a different country. You have a lot of experience going to China, Ian. Did Brian say anything that deviated from your experience? In terms of the manufacturing, like not a lot has changed, it doesn't seem like. But just the insights that he's able to gain from living there for 10 years and knowing the language gives him a huge advantage. I think there's tons of leverage to be had there in terms of negotiating with these factory owners and navigating through China. You know, some of his insights about the ways that the government is running some of these businesses, I thought was just fascinating. Kind of gives you a perspective in terms of like where the country's going and how they're using these these companies to get them there. Another thing that I found really interesting was that it's celebrated that factory managers go off and start their own enterprises a lot of times, and then they will sell back the product to the company that they're working for. I thought that that was pretty cool. And it's something that in America, I think there's like a lot of jealousy around that, right? And I've seen it. I've actually experienced it firsthand, which is like you break off from the company that you're working at, you start a new company. The people at that old company are kind of resentful, jealous, curious, confused. But there, according to Brian's account, it seems like it's a really celebrated thing. And I thought that was pretty cool. Someone the other day asked me, you know, he'd never been to China. And he was like, you know, what do you make of like people from China? And it, it's kind of a crazy question because there's so many people from China. But my first thought was like this enormous amount of respect for their entrepreneurial enthusiasm and the level of hustle and hard work that I've seen coming from a country, America, that supposedly is sort of the heart of entrepreneurship and the modern economy or whatever. It's like, I've seen a lot more of that when I go to China than I ever saw back home. Yeah. This isn't the first episode we've done on China. So if you're an e-commerce entrepreneur, you're interested in doing business in China, we've got a whole series here at the TMBA, and we will link up to that at this post, tropicalmba.com slash Brian Miller. Thanks for joining us this week. We'll be back next week, as always, Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.